Yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, speak to us tonight, uh, this morning as we come before you. Give us humility to learn from your word. Uh, give us humility to know that no one holds the truth except you. Help us not to be wise in our own lives, but help us to know that you have a word for us today. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. God, give us eyes to see. God, would you tune our ears to hear the things you want us to hear today? God, we pray that you would tune our hearts to hide your treasure deep inside of us. And God, as to that end, that I pray you speak uh, through my vocal cord today, that you will stand in my body, that you will have me say the very words that you tailor-made for each one of us here in this room. God, I pray that the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight today. Our God, our Redeemer, Lord, we pray that you will get glory in this room as we gather as your people to celebrate what you have already accomplished in us and you continue to make us more and more like you. So, Lord, bless your word. Get glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, today we're going to, our scripture reading is from Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bible with you, please turn there. As you know, we've been covering chunks and chunks and chunks of passages, so it is quite impossible for me to read through the whole thing. For example, last week, we went through the Old Testament. It would be awfully long for us to read through all 39 books. So, but I've been picking passages that kind of help summarize what we're doing. If you're here for the first time or you haven't been here for a while, we are on a series called GPS. It is really a survey through the entire Bible, but not looking at different books of the Bible as its own theme, but really the, the bigger picture, the bigger story, the one story that the Bible is about. Uh, if you think of a literary term, it's like a meta-narrative. What is that one plot line? And we've seen uh, four, uh, three acts of that. Well, today we'll jump to the fourth one. But before we turn there, let's read from Mark chapter 1, first book in the New Testament. You don't know where it is. Okay? Mark chapter 1, verse, uh, I'll pick it up in verse 14 and go to 17. Here is one of the earliest ministries that Jesus had uh, on earth. Here what it says, verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I don't know about you, um, I have this problem that my kids and my wife know very well. I like to look, I lose things a lot. And the problem is not just losing things. The problem is when I lose things and I try to find them, I have a hard time finding them. I don't know if it ever happened to you when you're looking for something and you're looking all over the place. You're looking in your room, you're looking in the, uh, the shelf, you're looking in the kitchen. After looking for, for many, like a lot of time has passed, only to find out that that very item was just right in front of you. Like, it literally happened to me. I was wearing my glasses, and I was yelling in my house, like, kids, boys, go look for my glasses. 
So we spend time looking in every room, in the, in the bathroom, in my bedroom, next to my bed. And all the while, after a while, my kids are like, Dad, the glasses are on your face. I was like, no, it's not. And I put my hand on there. Of course, it is on my face. Right? You perhaps have the same experience. You're looking for your homework. You're like, I swear it was on my desk. And we all have some assumption where our things happen to be. We all have some preconceived notion of, man, I know that my watch is next to my bed. So when we lost it, somehow we'll just go back to these places and we'll retrace our stuff. But many times, the very thing we're looking for is just right in front of us. And it is so frustrating. And you make you seem like a fool. It's like, how on earth can I not see my glass on my nose? But that's the reality. And that is kind of where we're going to head today, where well, we we're heading to today. Because in this fourth act of the story of God, people will be looking and looking and looking. They will be looking for that Messiah that they've long heard of, long read about, and they'll be looking as they thought they knew where he would be and how he will look like, what he would sound like, only to find out the very Messiah that they have been looking for was right in the midst of them. And they will miss it completely as he walks side by side, eat with them, teach them, walk with them, and even live with him. And they would have missed out on who this Messiah is. Again, we talk about the Bible, the story of the Bible. We start off with Acts, uh, Act 1, not Acts, the book of Acts. Act 1 was the creation. We saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world in an amazing way, perfect way. But just like every good old story, there's always a twist. Rebellion happened with Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit they're not supposed to. When God said you can eat of all the fruit, but they chose to eat the very one from the tree, the very one tree that God told them not to eat from. As a result of that, of their rebellion, sin entered into the world. There's judgment and there was punishment for the serpent, Adam, and Eve. And subsequently, you and I sitting here are the fruit or the bad fruit of what they have done. Last week, we looked at this long history of the Old Testament and we see that God had a plan. God had a promise through this one man called Abraham that he will be blessed. His thoughts will be blessed, so blessed that he will have many children, he will have a land, and God will use him and his family to bless the rest of the world, but only to find out that promise, again, was good but not enough. Because the people of God continuously to rebel against him. God gave them a form of sacrifice, and they take full advantage of that sacrifice. They just keep sinning, sacrificing, asking for forgiveness. They went on this cycle of rebellion, repentance, rebellion, repentance, only to the point that at the end of the Old Testament, we find the people of God got kicked out of the promised land, the very land that God wanted them to have to display for the world once and for all how the people of God ought to be like. That when God is in your life, this is what it looks like. But it did not show any of that. Because the people of God continued to rebel. And they got kicked out. Some of them got brought back. And it is to that point that we start entering into what we see in Mark chapter 1. But believe it or not, actually between Malachi to Mark chapter 1, there was a long, long period of time where God did not speak. I don't know what ever happened to you. When you screwed up so badly, 
normally your parents will start yelling at you when you did something bad. But that one time when you did something so bad, what did your parents do? Instead of yelling at you, instead of, of uh, uh, arguing with you, they gave you the silent treatment. Those are the worst. You came in the house, they just don't talk to you. They don't say even a word. You're like, come on, mom, yell at me, yell at me, yell at me. But they say nothing. They're like, wait, does that mean it's okay? Like, just go to my room? Like, I'm forgiven? Like, what is it? And it's just this silent treatment. They just don't talk to you. They're so disappointed that they don't say any word to you. And here in your, in your room, you're sitting on your bed, start replaying, like, should I have done it over here? Should I have done it differently? They give you a silent treatment. I know that it works effectively because now that I'm a parent, you know what I do? I do the exact same thing. Man, if they really treat me, you know what I'm going to I'm just going to give you the silent treatment. Maybe then you'll realize what happened. And that's what happened. At, between Malachi and the New Testament, there was a 400 per- years period where God did not speak to his own people. And between the 400 years, God's people were going, cycling through different empires. They were under the Persian Empire. They were under the Greek Empire. And now, finally, when the New Testament opened up, they are under the most prolific, the most uh, destructible, the strongest empire there was up to this point, the Roman Empire, which you read about in your history book. There are emperors upon emperors, there are Caesars, and under the rule of the emperors, the people of God, the Jews, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God suffered. It made them bring, bring, brought them back to the very beginning, their forefathers in Exodus, under the rule of Egypt, that they were being enslaved, they were being suppressed, and all the while, the only difference between Exodus and now, in the opening of New Testament, was that God was speaking to them. God did not give them the cold shoulder. God did not give them a silent treatment. In this new era, new, well, they didn't know it was New Testament, but at that though, during 400 years, they were frustrated. They were hoping, waiting, longing for the Redeemer to come. But not one whisper. Not one peep. God did not say, send them a word. God did not send people to rebuke them. God gave them the silent treatment, and they were wondering, where was that God that we believed in? And it is at that place when we open up the New Testament, the people of God were longing and waiting, God, would you just show up like you did in Exodus to rescue us from this tyranny of Roman Empire, the Caesar, the emperor that is, that, that is killing us, that is enslaving us. And there are four groups of people in that time that, that deal with that in different ways. One of the group is called the Pharisees. They continue to obey the law of God, hoping that by obeying the law of God, somehow God will find favor on them, that God will just show up because they're obedient to God. And then there's a second group. This group also obeyed the law, but then they figure that if I can't win the game, I'm going to join the team that wins it. So what they do is, they kind of cheapen themselves and start selling themselves to the Roman Empire. These are called Sadducees, and they hold high position. They are in the civil uh, government uh, 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 position, and they will continue to, to kind of appease the Roman Empire, all the while holding up their Jewish law. And then there's a third group that they want nothing to do with the Roman Empire. So they are called the Sadducees. They're so zealous to kill and to have a revolution against the Roman Empire. 
these guys will hold knives, small knives in their, in, their, in, their, in, their, in their garment. And when they see Roman officials, they will go and kill them. Oh, by the way, one of the 12 disciples was originally a zealot. And then there's this fourth group of people. The, the fourth group, they don't have nothing to do with this world. They think if I just disappear to a desert and hide away, I will just wait till uh, God come back, wait till the redeemers come back. Now, not everyone will fit in all four of those categories, but by and large, most people during Jesus' day have one or the other of approach because they are just tired of waiting for the Redeemer to come. But it is in that longing and desperation, one night, one very quiet night, a baby was born. This Act 4 starts with the story in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. A baby was born in Bethlehem. Not a lot of fanfare. The only thing that happened was the shepherds were there. Wise men came and celebrated. Angels celebrated and sang. But by and large, most of you have no idea this baby was born. That baby grew. For 30 years in obscurity. 30 years in obscurity. He grew before man. He grew before God. And he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. And by the time he turned 30, he started his ministry. He started to, to, to announce to the world, I am that king that you were all looking for. I am that redeemer, the one looking to rescue you from this world. He began with a message that we just read earlier from Mark chapter 1. He says this, the, uh, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was announcing to the world at the age of 30, the first message he preached was this idea of the kingdom of God is right here with you and I. For many of us, the kingdom of God is a foreign idea because we don't live in kingdom anymore. We live in a republic. We live in a nation. There is no king. But when the people of God heard this, they were excited because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew that the kingdom he was referring to is the kingdom that God started in the first place in Genesis when he created all things. Now he was a king and the king got robbed of his glory. And now this kingdom will be fulfilled today and this time is right here. And what Jesus' life was all about for the next three years. One would argue even the first 30, but particularly for the next three, is he will do a show and tell of what this kingdom of God is about. He will do a show and tell because he was telling, showing and telling you not from obscurity, but he will show and tell you from the king on the perspective of the king, who is the king over that kingdom. Jesus would go around teaching not just what does that kingdom look like, but how to live in that kingdom, giving a, a, a a foretaste what that kingdom will be like. He will tell us this, the kingdom of God, there will be no sin. And Jesus will show, he will forgive sinners. And then he will talk, he will talk about the kingdom of God will be no blind man, then he will heal, give sight to the blind man. He will talk about the kingdom of God, there will be no marginalized, no poor, no broken people because he will redeem them, he will heal them. In the kingdom of God, there will be no, there will be, there will be peace. There will be no evil power. He will cast out demons by showing people this is what the world you will look like. It will look like one day when there's no evil spirit in the world. 
There will be no death. He will resurrect. He will show that power, resurrect people from dead. We see Lazarus. We see Jairus' daughter. He will go around and do these miracles upon miracles and teach about the kingdom. He will continue to teach. His teaching was so good that people walk away feeling, wow, I've never heard of teaching like that. Not because he was this eloquent teacher, not because he used illustration that tugged at my heart, not because he can manipulate my feeling. He was such a good teacher because he had authority unlike any other teacher on earth. He would talk about the kingdom of God. Like a little tiny seed planted in the field, the seed will be small at first, but one day it will grow into a large tree. The kingdom of God is like this little hidden treasure that is worth your time to go find it. It is like a pearl that's hidden on the ground that you can give away all that you have and go find and, and buy that pearl. He will teach the kingdom of God is like a great feast. Every broken people, every poor people that is on the outside of our world, they will be invited into that feast because God loves those broken hearted. But not only did he teach, he didn't just tell people, he performed miracles and healings. He did all sorts of stuff to show the power of God. Literally, 80% of the, of the Gospels, the four Gospels, are perspectives and stories of what God did, Jesus did with the power of God. I mean, just run through a few of them. Jesus healed a paralytic. Remember that four, four friends who carried a guy, broke the roof, someone was and lowered a friend down? Jesus healed him, but Jesus needs to get up and walk. Jesus to ask the people around him, is it easier to forgive sin or to tell this man to walk? Jesus, in that story, showed the power of God to heal, but the greater power of only what God can do is to forgive sin. As it does not enough, after a long day of teaching, Jesus was on the boat with his disciples. You remember the story? They were in this stormy sea in Galilee, just another Tuesday on Galilee. Galilee was a lake, was a sea where there's a lot of storms. It is not unusual that they will see and be, the waves will be strong. But here's the thing. When people, when the disciples start fixing their eyes on the waves, they were so frightened that Jesus, they start saying, Jesus, Jesus, wake up. Do something. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus spoke and told the song to be still. Man, I wish I had that power to my kids. Be still. And they just listen. But Jesus didn't do it on people. Jesus did it on the sea, the nature. Listen, the, the disciples are wondering, who is this Jesus that would believe and put our lives and uh, trust our lives to? He can calm the storm. He has power even over nature. If we say so, an uh, earthquake with earthquake with st- storm will be still. Several locations, Jesus raised people from the dead. I talk about Lazarus. I want to take us to the story of uh, Jairus' daughter. It was really funny because Jairus' daughter was so dead that when Jesus showed up, Jesus said, no, no, she's not dead. She's sleeping. You know what the people did when they heard Jesus saying that? They were laughing at Jesus. They're like, no, Jesus, no. Like, she's dead. Like, real dead. Not asleep. If you haven't heard, she's been dead. You know what Jesus did? She walked into the room. And she said, wake up. And Jairus' daughter woke up. You can see the jaws that were dropped onto the floor that day in that room. 
And God, through Jesus, was doing all these miracles and healing. He touched the leper. He, he dealt with the people who were on the outcast. All of which to show the very power of God and give them a foretaste of what the world will be like one day. God, Jesus will be doing miracles to show a glimpse of what the restoration of God had promised from the very, very beginning. So Jesus show and tell, Jesus taught, Jesus did miracle. But here's the thing, Jesus also chose 12 disciples. After a long night of prayer, we saw that in the story that Jesus prayed and then he called 12 people to be his followers. We know the ending of the story, not all 12 followed. One ended up betraying him. But there's something there, there that Jesus was not just reaching out to the crowd. He was not about the hundreds and the thousands. Jesus was also about the 12. Jesus wanted to train to be with these 12 so that they would go out and continue the work that he would be doing, he was doing, and that they would continue to do. The kingdom of God will be advanced through these 11, or 12, uh, 11, really. These men gave up their own lives. They gave up their job. They gave up their family to follow this Jesus, which is really, in, by, by all accounts, not that, not that big of a, of a personality. There were teachers, and other teachers probably are probably more popular than him, but yet they gave their lives over to follow Jesus for these next three years. And by this point of Jesus' life, more and more people start hearing about him. Crowds are coming. People start getting healed. Things are just getting excited. But not everybody loved Jesus. In fact, there were a lot of people who were leaders, religious leaders, that ended up hating Jesus because they realized that Jesus was taking away their thunder. And so they start plotting to kill Jesus. So after three years of teaching and showing and, and, and manifesting God's power into this world and announcing to the world, the kingdom of God is here and I am that king, Jesus, enter into Jerusalem to take the Passover. See, Passover is a big deal for the Jewish people because, as I said earlier, that is an event, that commemorated event that is so key to the people of God. It was the event in Exodus before they were released from Egypt for the final act of power. God spared the people of God and killed every firstborn in Egypt so that Pharaoh will let go of the people of God so that they can go into the promised land. And Passover literally is that phrase, passing over the angel of death, being passing over the household of God, the people of God. And so every year, the Jewish people would take Passover to celebrate the Redeemer that they had. And I want you to feel it. Because the very people sitting in that room with Jesus, or the people at Jesus' time, they were feeling suppressed and oppressed. They were looking for that same Redeemer that their forefather had experienced. And they were wondering, where, would he, where is he? And when Jesus took the Passover with them, Jesus gave them a whole new meaning of what Passover is. Because Jesus starts saying to them, as you remember this, these people will be growing up remembering what the Passover story was. Passover will be just like Chinese New Year for you and I, for many of us are Chinese. It's that big of a deal. And Jesus would tell them, you know that Passover, that Passover lamb? 
that really is me. That one day I will be sacrificed. And you will be passed over from death to life because of your relationship with me. By the end of that Passover meal, we know the disciples still kind of clueless. We know that one of the disciples ended up going out to betray him. Because at the end of that, by the midnight, by the late night, early morning, Jesus was arrested. Some religious made a plan to, to murder Jesus. And Jesus was betrayed by one of his own Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And they arrested him and took him. To not just be killed, not just to be hurt, not just to be mocked, but to the most excruciating punishment there is on earth, the crucifixion. Did you know that crucifixion was reserved only for people who are not Roman citizens? It was that bad of a punishment, of a torture, that is reserved to the worst of the worst. And yet, and yet Jesus after all these accusations was wrongly accused and finally being carried uh, with the wood on his arms and, and in his hands, and he was carried to this place called Skull Hill, Golgotha, Calvary, a name that more, many of us are more familiar with. When that morning came, nails were put onto his hands, nails on his feet. He was hung on that cross grasping for air because he would have a hard time breathing. By the way, that's why they put people on the cross because this is one of the worst way of dying. That every time he's take a breath, he lifts himself up, take a quick breath, only to get let gravity does his work to carry him. The body of his weight will start sinking back down and then he will feel the every ounce of pain on his nails. And it's on that morning People did not sympathize with him. In fact, early on that week, that same Jesus was riding down into Jerusalem in a donkey, and people were celebrating him. You are the king that we're looking for. You are the king after the King David. You are our redeemer. You are our king. They have palm leaves and palm trees celebrating this king, but yet within just a short week, this king... He's now on the cross, suffering. The very king that they put their hope in now is dying of the death that the worst of criminals deserve. By noontime, the entire sky was dark. Jesus breathed his last, and what happened in the temple was most spectacular because the curtain from top to bottom split. Jesus breathed his last, breathed his last, and he died. Exactly according to the plan that God had for him. And you're wondering, how can it be according to the plan of God? Because the people, including his disciples, were shocked particularly John in his recording, he said, how could it be this Messiah, this king, would die? That is not what the Old Testament tells us. This king is supposed to sit on the throne. He's supposed to be worshipped. Every knee will bow. Every, every tongue will confess. But yet in the midst of that chaos and death, when it seemed like it was a defeat, 
that was right in the middle of that. That is the will of God. The victory arose literally from the grave. Because we know that story, don't we? Three days later, a few women ran to the tomb. It was open. No one was in the tomb. The angel showed up and said, who are you looking for? Jesus uh, cries, and, he, and the angel told the woman, he was resurrected. He was no longer dead. He was no longer being, being, being a result of the fallen nature of this world that you and I experience, that we can die because of our sin. But yet now he's risen. He has victory over death. You remember when I want to bring you all the way back to Genesis chapter 3? Remember that punishment, that, that announcement, the judgment that God had upon Satan, uh, the serpent Satan? He said that you will one, one day, the woman's offspring will crush you. But on the other hand, the serpent will bite the, the, the serpent will bite the heel of that offspring. You see, the story is so weird, because so upside down, because Jesus seemed to be in defeat, being uh, be, uh, died, uh, died because of, of the sin of this world. God punished him, but yet at the end, he came out three days later. He was actually in victory. He won. Therefore, you and I no longer have to live under the power of sin. Now we live in a resurrected Christ, and we live with a living God. See, this act for is the climax of this story. Because up to this point, things have been just bad. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for God? What, is it, what do we know about God? Here's two things I want us to come away with. Here's the first one. Jesus Christ is always better. See, all through the Old Testament, we've seen how incomplete that old covenant was. Yes, it was functional, but it was not complete. Jesus is better in every way. The new covenant comes forth because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And now, because of that, it gave a better promise. It gave a better result to what God has offered in Old Testament. Jesus, one of the, one of the best books to look and read through that, if you, if you have time or you want to do that for your devotional time, is the book of Hebrew. No other books in the, in the whole New Testament illustrate this better than the book of Hebrews. Because literally, the whole book of Hebrews is about convincing you, arguing for you, the author is arguing for you how Jesus is better than every single thing in the Old Testament. Jesus is better than Moses because he is not just a prophet of God, he's the son of God. Jesus is greater than, than Joshua because Joshua brings people to rest in this promised land, but it's not eternal rest. Jesus brings us into the ultimate rest. One day we'll be with God forever. Jesus is greater than the angel. The angel is higher than human being, but God himself is the divine king. Even angels listen to Jesus. But not who Jesus is, but even his ministry. Jesus' ministry is better than what the Old Testament ministry was because Jesus died for us once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is better in every way because he sacrificed himself for us. Which I think is the second thing, which I think a lot of times we take this for granted, is because we think Jesus supposed to came on earth. See, Jesus is only going to be better for you and I if he actually came on earth in flesh. 
that Jesus actually came as a human being, fully human being, fully God on earth, because God did not just send a, a blast of text and say, save these people. God did not send a representative of an angel to save you and I. He had to send the most perfect person, the second Godhead, second person in the Godhead, his son, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 captured this well for us. Just how far Jesus had to go to come on earth. Philippians 2, 6 and 8 says this, Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man, wrap your mind around that. That God so loved you that he purposely limited himself to come in the form of a person. Not as the person as a king, but the person as a servant. Not to enjoy privileges, but to come and to die. That is the Jesus that has, given to, that has come on earth in flesh for us. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's an older uh, person, Paul Harvey. He used to be a broadcaster. He talked talk about this story. It's called Man and the Birds. You can read that online if you want to. Uh, he talked about this story, Man and the Birds. It starts like this. He says, one really, really cold evening. While he was outside, he looked outside, it was snowing. And he was standing by the kitchen. He just keep hearing this sound, this thumping sound. It goes like this. He goes. And as he took a look out, he realized it was not a man who was knocking on the door. It was just a few birds. That just keep thumping their head, thumping their body to the glass because the warmth of the house was attracting them. They want to be inside of the house. They want to experience warmth. But what they cannot realize is that there is something called glass in between them. So as he looked at that, he walked outside. He, he, he put on his coat, tried through the snow. He walked outside to his barn and opened up his barn. Tossed some hay on the side, start, crack, start, start breaking some saltine crackers and, and kind of putting this path. And hopefully the bird will start coming into the barn to find warmth. As he laid him out, what he realizes the bird are not flying in. In fact, the bird was so afraid of him that they just kind of stay outside in the dark. All the while in his mind, he's saying, birds, come on in. It's warm, it's safe. I did this for you. So what he did is start start using different uh, tactics to trying to get the birds in. And one thing he did was try to go around the bird in a circle, trying to scare them and bring them in. The birds only just scattered everywhere else. It didn't work. And so what he did, he got more crackers, start tossing it into the barns. Maybe just by that time, by that time the bird would start following the so also teen crackers and start entering into it. But that didn't work. He tried and tried and tried, and ultimately nothing worked, so he resolved to go back to his room and just keep watching. Looking at these birds and realizing that there's nothing that he could do, then all of a sudden a thought came into his mind. A thought like a thunder in a clear sky, and he just dropped into his mind as he said this. He remembered thinking, this, man, if I could only, just for a brief moment, to be a bird. 
then I can lead these birds into this safe, warm place. If only for a brief moment I can communicate with them, talk to them, lead them, then they will go in. Then as quickly as that thought came, then another thought came. He remember, this is exactly what Jesus had done for us. That's what incarnation is all about because this huge being of a human, it was scaring the bird. Now imagine this huge being of God, the creator of the universe, how scary that could have been for you and I. Yet he humbled himself. Take on the likeness of a man. Worth it, a servant. So that he can open up and lead us into a way of safety, security, and salvation. And that's what God is calling, and that's what God had will for his son to do for us. That is the good news. That is the good news that we talked about in the Bible. But this good news requires response. Have you guys noticed that some news doesn't require response? Most of the stuff that is on, on, on your social media network, they don't require response, so people respond to them. So, for example, when, when, we, when we gave birth to our sons, we will send an email blast. Our son was born at 4.50 a.m. Not really for a response, it's just information. Maybe secretly I'm hoping for a response. People will say congratulations or even cook a meal for us later on. But really, that is just for information's sake, right? But some news require response, isn't it? If someone here also come in the rooms and said, there's a fire going on in the sanctuary, that news requires a response. Because that person coming and yelling is not waiting for you. Oh, that's, that's interesting. There's a fire in the sanctuary. Oh, okay, well, that's cool. We'll finish the service and then we'll, we'll take a look. That, that required a response. Someone say that news hoping that someone would call 911 or go and rescue some people. The same is true with the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not for information, but it is really for a response. I just want to quickly, I know as we're running, uh, ending here, I want to give you three responses Jesus said from the very passage we started with in Mark chapter 1. Really, one response with three parts. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the first part. Repent, believe in the gospel, and verse 17 says, follow me. This good news of Jesus requires to have a three-part response. Many of us only have one out of the three, or two out of the three, but Jesus said you need all three. You need to repent and acknowledge that you have sinned against God, but not only that, you need to believe that what Jesus has done on the cross is enough to pay for your sin. And here's the third part. You need to commit your life to Jesus. That does not mean perfect obedience. doesn't mean that you earn your love from Jesus, but what, does mean, what that does mean is that you're going to follow him wherever at least you are coming with the assumption and faith and trust that Jesus has the best for your life, and so now I want to follow him wherever he goes. It is almost like a marriage, uh, a, a marriage vow that till death do us part. I'm not saying, well, when you're sick, then you're on your own wife. I'm committed my whole life to be with you. And the same is true. That Jesus called us, this good news of you requires a response. And here's the last thing I want to share with us. Many times we think of this response as a response of religion. But be careful. 
Because this is not a responsible religion. This is a responsible relationship. See, the very reason why the people of people at Jesus' time cannot see Jesus, they're looking past Jesus and ignoring Jesus because they are looking for religion. And guess who got rebuked the most by Jesus? People who are religious. You know what religion is? Religion is cold. Religion is a set of rules. Religion is what I need to do, what I must do, what I must not do. Religion is static. Religious is an, an, an event on your calendar that you show up a couple hours a week. But that is not what Jesus offered. Jesus doesn't want greater religion. Jesus doesn't answer your, the problem of your life because you submit to a religion. Religion is about what you can do, but Jesus offers something far greater. The response that we see, repent, believe, and follow, it has to do with a relationship. A relationship is warm. Relationship is not a once-a-week thing. It's a continuous thing. Relationship is not always asking what kind of line, what kind of, uh, where is the line that I can push all the way to. Religion, uh, relationship is about how can I love and be loved? How can I know and be known? Relationship is never just once-a-while thing. And that is what Jesus is after. He offers a, not a religion, but he offers us a relationship. And let me end on this and asking you this question. Those of you who are non-believers, are you looking to religion to answer the problem of your life? And if you are, let me just spare you the time you will not find the answer of life from a religion. Because all you will see is what can I do to solve my problem? But the relationship said, Jesus said, I have done. Now you get to receive and you'll never be perfect. You'll never be obedient. You'll never come follow me on your own. But I've done it so that you can. And those of us who are, brother, who are uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you this. Are you living a religion? Are you really living in relationship with Jesus? There's a whole big difference between the two. Are you checklisting? Jesus, are you really in love and following him? Are you just playing the part of what a Christian should act like, talk like, think like? Are you just doing the playing the part like you would, like an Oscar winning actor would do? Or are you being? Are you being in love with Jesus? Are you walking and following Jesus? See, Jesus promised, he said, I die so that you have life, life to the fullest. Jesus did not die for us because he wants a better religion. Any other human being could have done that. But he died and resurrected so that we have life, real life. Not the life that the world promised the fullness of life that Jesus has lived through and so one day when you reunited with me you will live in full capacity